I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning. We're in Proverbs, the book of Proverbs. We're in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love it if you would turn there. But also, if you get to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, I would also ask you to turn over to James chapter 4. Verses 6 through 8 this morning. We're going to be in both of those passages. You'll see why in just a few moments. We are continuing our series, Fight for Joy, Walking in Victory Over the Patterns of Sin. The patterns of sin that we've been looking at are what uh, we might call the, the seven deadly sins or seven deadly follies. I like the word folly. Uh, because of the way that it, it goes so well um, with the, uh, the theme of the Proverbs, which is the Proverbs are making the simple wise, bringing wisdom to the simple. Friends, that's us. We're a people of folly. We're a people who uh, don't occasionally walk in folly. We, we have found ruts and patterns of folly, and we've looked at those during the course of this summer. This morning, we're considering the folly of pride. And I have to tell you, this morning, as we look at the folly of pride, there is a lot within me that has led me during the course of really a, a month of reflecting on this that wants to run as quickly as possible to talking about humility to talking about grace, to talking about God's kindness to a people of pride to bring us by grace through faith into a position of humility. So we're going to try our best to get there as quickly as we can and rejoice in God's humbling work in our lives. We're in Proverbs chapter 3, verses, verse 34 this morning. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 reads, Toward the scorners... He is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. Or as it says over in James, James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these proverbs that have led us to see where we walk, to see where we, the company that we tend to keep, the folly of our hearts and our minds and our patterns of behavior, the folly of our unbelief. I thank you for your kindness to us during the course of this summer to show us those things. But you have not left us there in that rut to climb our way out so that we could present ourselves righteous in and of ourself before our God. But you've come to us. You've been tempted in every way but without sin. And you've not only come to us and shown us a better way and said, hey, walk over here, but you have suffered in our place all of the justice that is due to us because of our folly. You've suffered in our place and you've restored us into right fellowship with wisdom, with 
God, with our Savior, Jesus Christ. You filled us with your Spirit, the very Spirit of wisdom. And you've given us a new way to live, a new way to walk. We thank you for this. We pray this morning that you would do this in the midst of this most difficult of follies, the folly of pride. Give us the eyes to see, Lord, that can only come by walking with our God. Lord, we trust you for this, that you would do this by your word and spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and keep Proverbs bookmarked, but we're actually going to spend the majority of our time actually in James, James's paraphrase and reflection and application of that proverb in his letter in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. This morning, we're going to look at that in part because it gives us such a beautiful outline, just sort of waiting. I don't have to be creative here at all this morning. I don't have to alliterate anything. All right, the, the, the five points of the message this morning are sitting there in James waiting for us to give attention. So look at it with me. You'll see the five points this morning. You don't even have to write them down. They're written down for you right there in James. God opposes the proud. God gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. We'll look at these five points this morning, beginning with God opposes the proud. God opposes the proud because pride is anti-God. In its, in its essence, pride is not, first of all, an interpersonal issue. The interpersonal nature of pride is, is simply the outworking, the fruit of an issue that is in the heart between the self and God, or even between a people together and God. Pride is anti-God. One of the reasons why I would offer to you that, that it's, pride is not, first of all, interpersonal between us and the way that we behave together is some of you and I are really good at not acting prideful. I we're good at it. We, we can pretend and perform with the best of them. We're actually kind of proud of the way that we can demonstrate our humility to other people. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, man, can we stop talking about this right now? Because that's me. All right? But that, friends, is a demonstration of the reality that pride is something that's going on in here. And it's been going on since the beginning of the entrance of sin into the midst of humanity. Pride is, at its essence, both rejecting the way of our God, and that's true how we walk, but we can pretend and perform our way around the way of God. We can make it look like we're walking in the way of God to the people around us. Now, God isn't fooled, right? You know that. God isn't fooled by our pretending to walk in his way. But we can pretend and perform our way around walking the way of God. But pride is also rejecting the glory and authority of God. And you can't pretend around that one. Not before our holy 
infinitely glorious, sovereign and providential God. Pride is an issue of rejecting the glory and authority of God. C.S. Lewis, some of you are familiar with him. Some of you know him because of his Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. He wrote a lot more, and he wrote a lot on pride. And man, some of the things that he wrote there are just piercing. Listen to C.S. Lewis. This vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite it in Christian morals is called humility, pride and humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. In a lot of ways, let me just pause there for a second. We've, we've talked about the interrelationship between the various follies, the way that greed and envy and gluttony are like a perfect trifecta, right? And you've got just the inter- I would I don't think it would be difficult to argue that pride is just standing there underneath of all of them, all of our folly. The utmost evil is pride, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Let me just pause on that. Thank you, Mr. Lewis, for giving us that. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of the mind, I would add the heart, of the emotions, of our behavior, of our our very essence. Pride is our anti-God state. Pride elevates the position, the ability, the authority that is the glory of the self above the self's rightful station. You see, we have been created, you have been created by God, and you have been given a place, a position, abilities, and authorities to occupy. You're not nothing. You are something, and you are what God has made you. You're not more than that. You're not less than that. And you are to occupy that station. Pride elevates the self above its rightful position, ability, and authority as a human being created in the image of God. Inevitably, this pride elevates the man, the self, above his rightful position of dependence and faith. And hear me on this. Essential to what it is to be a human being created by God is to occupy the position of dependence and faith. Pause on that. That's what it means to be you. Now, I'm not saying that you're doing it. I'm not saying you're walking it. I'm not saying that you're not bucking it. I'm not saying that you're not being prideful and trying to elevate yourself above a position of pride and dependence. But I'm telling you, what it means to be human is to occupy a position of dependence and faith in your maker. And rather, what we do is we end up sitting in the seat of the sovereign of our own lives. And then, and then, once we find ourselves trying to occupy the seat of sovereign over our own lives, you know what, we're just, we're just ready for this. All these peons around us, they're still sitting in the seats of dependence. We just occupy the seats of sovereign over their lives too. And so now, pride that began in rebellion against our maker 
is now working its way into our interpersonal relationships, you see. Once we believe that we're sovereign over self, we're gonna believe that we're sovereign over others as well. Consider how many kings and queens and rulers in history have risen up to exalt themselves, not only in their own minds, but as warlords and oppressors over the peoples all around them. And because before you begin to think that pride is this special little sin that tends to invade the ruling class of humanity, we have to look at the Scriptures, and what we see very quickly is that pride is the default position of our hearts. And honestly, I don't even think that we have to look very far. Our conscience will convict us of pride if we look at it for just a couple seconds. This is the reality of the gospel. The gospel is kind enough to shine the light of truth upon us and reveal to us our own fallen nature. That from our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, we have been prone to leave the position of dependence and faith in our Creator, faith in the one who has promised and provided every bit of grace and provision that we need. We have a tendency, a proneness to vacate that position of dependence and faith and rise up as our own sovereign. At its essence, you've heard us say along the way that sin is shaking our fist at God, shaking in the air and saying, on my own, I can live. Adam and Eve in the garden saying, I know that you laid out a way. I know that you gave a provision and told us how we were to partake of it with joy and to walk with you in the cool of the day. I know all of that, but we have this other dude in the garden, and he told us that there's another way, and if we did that, we could be like God. And so they shook their fist in the air, and they said, on our own, you said that we would die. No, on our own, we can live. And that's not some sort of special sin that Adam and Eve occupied. That is the nature, the essence of all of our sin. To reject the way of our God and His rightful rule over us as His created being created to be dependent upon Him and to enjoy His providence. Providence, I love words, love thinking about words, love thinking about how they're related to other words, right? Providence is his provision. When we talk about God's providence, we're not talking, and it often gets related in, in our minds to his sovereignty, his kingship, his providence. His providence is his provision, the abundance of a garden for the people to enjoy. You see, when we shake our fist in the air at God and and we say, on our own we can live. We're rejecting the enjoyment of all of his gracious providence, his gracious provision. What we're rejecting, friends, is grace. Consider this explanation of pride again from C.S. Lewis. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. I just put a period there, right? You just sit in that. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Now, before we go on, that's a problem, <laughs> right? Anybody noticing the problem here? I'm proud. You're proud. 
In our fallen nature, we are proud. And I think this is true. C.S. Lewis seems to suggest as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. I believe it's in alignment with our Scripture this morning. God opposes the proud. A proud man, Lewis says, is always looking down on a thing and a people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. But God opposes the proud. As he teaches us in our scripture this morning, in verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. His opposition is to the proud. As Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, great scripture to write down in the margin of your Bible if you're in there, if you're taking notes. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, it says this. Why do the nations rage, the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You can see them. They're waving their fist in the air and they're coming. They're coming. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us cast away their cords. Looking at God's providence, his grace, his rule, his way and calling it cords. He who sits in the heavens laughs. That's what it means when the scripture says God opposes the proud or to the scornful he is scornful. You're shaking your fist in the air at your maker? He who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. That's not cruel. That's realistic. The maker laughs. The Lord laughs at those who exalt themselves. But again, we must not think that this sort of of scorn is only reserved for rulers of kingdoms. Probably the easiest text we could have gone to this morning would be Proverbs chapter 16, verses 18 and 19. Some of you have already called that to mind. Proverbs chapter 16 says, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. I just don't think that there's a better example of that scripture than dad's. All right? I'm thinking, I've got my brother here this morning from from Indiana, and uh, I'm thinking about my dad, and I'm thinking about the time that I wasn't, I don't think I was born yet, but he decided to hop on a skateboard. Uh, And the thing is, dads, A, don't belong on skateboards. There's very few of them, and they're all on TV, all right? Uh, But typically what happens when dads do things like hop on skateboards, what do they say? Come on now, let me show you how it's done, son. Yeah, yeah, pride goes before, yeah, don't do it, don't do it. He decided to hop on the skateboard at the top of the hill. It just so happens to be that there's a railroad at the bottom of the hill. And uh, thankfully, there were no trains on the railroad, but there is a hill at the bottom of the hill. And I'll just leave it there with you to reflect on this afternoon. Uh, Pride goes before destruction, all right? A haughty spirit before destruction. A fall. We must recall Jesus' own words at the outset of the Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? Blessed are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like you think Eden was cool. How about the kingdom of heaven? Poor in spirit. 
That's those who take possession of that glorious providence, reserved, kept in heaven for the saints. Yes, it's not only better to be of a lowly spirit, the Lord calls us blessed who come to him in humility. I just have to pause there for another moment and just observe how how twisted we are. And some of you may even be in this place. And I'm just, I'm trying to be kind, trying to be gracious and enter into the reality that I've sat where you are, where the effort by which you come to God is to show that you've got it this time. God, I've got it this time. I know how to be a Christian this time, and I'm not going to miss church. Promise. And I'm going to ask the pastor how I can serve. I've got it this time. That is not what Jesus calls blessed. You see, we're to enter not with gifts, but to receive grace. That's why it's blessed for those who are poor in spirit. We come to him and say, I've tried it. I've tried the shake my fist in the air sort of thing. I've even tried the I'm going to do it your way sort of thing. But I didn't pay attention to the fact that your way is a call to dependence and faith, not to self-righteousness to dependence and faith. That's why we have to fight to get to the next sentence. God gives grace to the humble. Can we stop talking about pride for just a little bit and enjoy that? This is really the purpose of James's reflection on Proverbs this morning as we look at it. He wants to describe what he means when he says that God gives more grace. You'll notice at the beginning of the passage this morning, I didn't read that. I wanted to get right to the, to the paraphrase of the proverb, but he says God gives more grace, and it's within a section in which he's explaining what that means. He wants to describe what that means. God, grace is the way of our God. Grace is his way. It's his disposition to those who humble themselves before him, who occupy their rightful station as created human beings, created in a position of dependence to occupy the role of faith, grace, providence, provision, abundance, kingdom is waiting for those who humble themselves before him. I want us to see something about humility this morning. Humility is a posture of submission, dependence, and thanksgiving. You you can submit and depend like this. You know what I mean? Like whatever. I guess. I guess I'll lay down my way and do it your way. Oh, there's too many commands to rejoice in the scriptures for that to be the way. Now, humility is a posture, not only is submission and dependence, but of thanksgiving toward God and his grace that becomes a way of life in the midst of God's people together. It's a disposition and a way with our God that becomes a way of a people together. Both of those are absolutely true, or it's not humility. Okay? Both of those are true. 
That is the work of God's grace in our lives to fashion humility in us. That we will have an experience with him that becomes an experience with the whole of his people. In Romans, after laying out the glories of God's gift of grace, which is what Romans is, Paul describes the genuine love that is the fruit of the grace of Christ at work in the midst of the church. Here at the getting near the end of Romans, in Romans chapter 12, he begins to unpack what he calls what is given by the grace of God to me. Romans 12, verses three through five. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You hear that call to humility? But to think with sober judgment. It's not that you're not supposed to think at all. But occupy a sober station. Not a low, 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 low station. A sober, like, like you have clear thought. You're able to discern your place in the world. Right? He's made you to occupy a place. And it's not the place of a worm. It's not the place of an ant. It's not the place of God. It's human. Faith and dependence. Walking with our God. Made in his image. Made in his image, folks. You get to occupy that place. That's with sober judgment. What does it look like to walk as a people who are made in the image of God? Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. Ah, now that's interesting. Not only has he made us human to walk with him, he's made us particular to walk with him. For as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And this body that are made particularly Though together they are made in the image of God, occupying the role of human, now redeemed creature, sons and daughters of the living God, inheriting an eternal kingdom, we are together, one body, particularly equipped and assigned. I want us to see a couple things. Grace first tutors us to stand at our full height and be measured. Grace does not tutor you to a false humility of groveling in the dirt lower than God has made you to stand. Stand up straight. I'm trying to measure you, God says. I made you to stand to a height, and I want you to stand up that way. Not to stand on our tippy toes and think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but to stand up flat-footed and be measured. We stand before our God, And friends, when you stand before God, that will create sobriety. If you're drunk on your pride and you find yourself face to face with God, you will sober up very quickly. And that's precisely what our scripture is calling us to to stand up full height before our God. And be measured. All the more sobering is that when we're measured according to the righteousness of God and we're found lacking, 
Like we stand up and he says, here's the righteous standard of our God. And by the way, here's the standard of holiness to which I have called you as a human being and I've equipped you, I give you everything you needed to live by this righteous standard. And we find that we don't measure up. What are we met with? Grace and not judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you are in Christ and you stand up before him and you are sobered up real quick and you see you don't measure meet the standard, if you are in Christ, what you will be met with, what you have been met with is grace, not judgment. Think of it. When you're caught in some misdeed some, and you're disciplined for some crime, maybe you've been pulled over for a speeding ticket, we rarely feel humbled. You ever stop by a speeding ticket and say, oh man, I just... I'm a worm. I just, I'm a speeder, and I know it, you know? And you just like, like, humble me, Mr. Officer, sir. Nah, you rise up in pride. I was, it was only five over. Everybody else is flying by me at 15. What in the world? No, when we're met with justice, we're rarely humbled. But when we know we're wrong, and we're caught in our wrong, and we're shown grace, That's humbling. That's our position before our God, to stand up, be measured, found lacking grace. Humility. Do you see it? This is the gospel. This is the effect of the gospel of grace being poured out on a people that you don't have to get yourself perfectly humble. All you have to do is come and stand and he'll humble you. He'll sober you up, and he'll humble you with his grace and kindness. You see, we're wrong. We're wrong at our core, and the creator of the universe hanging on the cross for our sin has outed our misdeeds when we look at him there, and we say, that's what I deserved. I didn't just deserve to die. I deserved to die publicly and shamed public display of guilt and shame, and we look at him displaying what we ought to have, and his words are, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Grace, are you not humbled? Stand there. The next time in the prayer of confession, look at him there and be humbled by the word of grace. Grace works a glorious exchange in the life of the believer. We who in pride have exalted ourselves above our station are humbled by grace. But in being humbled before the cross of Jesus Christ, we're lifted out of guilt and shame. He says that's what should happen. That's what ought to happen. But we're lifted out of guilt and shame, forgiven of our sin, and granted a position in the kingdom of our Lord. And the one who hangs there in our place, bearing our sin and shame in our place, he is exalted to the highest place, Philippians chapter 2. There is a glorious exchange in the beauty of the execution of grace. There is a reason why we don't stop talking about the gospel We don't stop talking. When we say gospel, we're not talking about some generic good news. We're talking about a particular historic act by Jesus, the Son of God, perfect incarnate. The God-man hanging on a cross for you. The reason we can't stop talking about that 
is because that act of grace humbles us to occupy the station that we were created for, that we have been redeemed for, and that we get to enjoy by his providence forever. I would read it for you, but just to move on quickly, I would just refer you this week, spend time in Philippians chapter two. It'll humble you in a good way. It's grace. Having situated ourselves in light of the cross, finding our new stature, our new sense of self, not in our pride, but in grace, we discover a whole new way to live. The world has taken on a whole new light. So Romans, again, 14, just a couple chapters later, says this, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. We get a new way to live, humbled by grace, and we trust in his provision as he gives gifts to his church, and we occupy that station, and we walk in that role, and we worship the Lord together because we're astounded by his grace. We've been brought down from our position of pride in which we've exalted ourselves again, not only by our God, but we've pitted ourselves by, against one another when we've been brought down from that station of pride, and we find ourselves measured alongside all the people who have received grace, and we say, that's me. I get to occupy not a station of my self-righteousness, of my pride, of my pretending, of my performing, but instead I'm going to gather with the church of people who were recipients of grace. That's why Romans chapter 12, 16 closes off that section this way. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now that's an interesting one. Associate yourselves with the lowly. Who else are there? Do you get it? Those who have been humbled by grace recognize something that there is no one else to associate with but the lowly in the kingdom. There's only those who are poor in spirit who occupy a place there. It's here that we can live in harmony. We can associate with the lowly because the gospel has outed our lowly estate apart from Christ and given us a new position in which to enjoy grace. We're not wise in our own sight, but we've been exalted by the love and the grace of our God. In James, it says, submit yourselves to God. I just want to very briefly Encourage you to live in light of grace, in humility, not pride, in a few particular challenges. Humility is, is quite simple. Some of you are like, what? Humility is very simple. One easy step, walk with God. Okay? You write, everybody write, nobody rewrote that down. Come on, I just gave you one easy step to humility. Somebody write that down. All you have to do... But the problem is it's brutally difficult because it requires our attention every single moment of every single day. Micah 6.8 tells us, he has told you a man what is good. He didn't tell you how to be perfect. But he told you what is good. He told you a beautiful way in which to live. And then he says, and what does the Lord require of you? What does it look like to walk in this good way? Do justice. Oh, that's easy. Love kindness. Walk humbly 
with our God. Many have suggested that that last one is the key to all the rest. Walk humbly with our God. I would ask you this. I, I, I stand by my sentence. It is very simple to be humble. Walk with God. It's as simple as raising a baby. Right now, all the mamas just got really mad. All right? Stick with me for a second. It's super simple. Like you feed them, right? Lay them down when they're crying. Pat them on the back for like sometimes too long. It takes too long for them to fall asleep. Sleep like a baby, whatever, you know? And then like you change them. Rinse and repeat. Like what else is there? It's really simple. Three easy steps. Except for it's all day. Oh, and night, every single moment of the day and night. Super simple, exhausting, difficult labor. That is the walk with God. It's super simple. Just walk with him. But the problem is what we tend to do is we think of ourselves, I walked with him. I went to church. I walked with him. I wrote something in my Bible about a day in which I prayed a prayer. I walked with him. How do you know that you're saved? Well, because I, I prayed. How do you know that you're saved? Because I asked Jesus into my heart. How do you know that you're saved? Because I'm, I'm doing better these days. Like, which time was that? Was it like 8 o'clock this morning that you were doing better? Was it at noon when you were arguing at the meal table? No. No, there's not like little moments when we've walked with God. No, walk humbly. Never leave the cool of the garden walking with our God. Humility requires a constant attention, not to ourselves. C.S. Lewis, just go read him. Just look up Pride C.S. Lewis, Google, you're done. All right? Not to ourselves. The second we start thinking of ourselves and how to remove pride, friends, you're going to become prideful. All right? It's impossible not to. But as Tim Keller calls it, he calls it the freedom of self-forgetfulness is the behavior of walking, looking, enjoying the grace of our God. Humility isn't walking in a particular way. Humility isn't a particular thing, doing a particular behavior, or obeying a particular set of rules and finding success in it. Humility is walking with God. A friend of mine in college once said, God gave me a humble button. He takes it away every time I wear it. That's how it works, right? That's what happens when you work on your humble thing, right? When you start working on your pride to become a better, humble person, it doesn't work. Walk with God. Stand up at your full height. Grab his hand. Walk along. Enjoy his grace. And he'll sober you. And you'll be humbled by his grace. It begins by a simple but constant twofold confession. I would offer you this the two parts of the simple way of walking with our God. The Lord is our maker. This is to refuse the pride that on my own I can live. I have a maker, and he's, he's made me a particular way, and he didn't make me a different way. He made me human. And he gave us this way to be dependent, faith-filled, walking with our God. The Lord is our maker, and secondly, the Lord is our Savior. To call the Lord our Savior is to refuse the pride that we can fix what ails us. 
And friends, we do that in so many ways. We're prone to redeem our own lives through licentious hedonism, through sin. We can redeem our own lives by just enjoying our life the way that we want to enjoy it. And we fix what ails us by imbibing gluttony all the time. In a variety of ways, we fix ourselves. Self-help. Or through self-righteous legalism. Same error. Same pride. I can fix me. I can be my savior. When we confess that he is our maker and our savior, we recognize that our sin nature has disposed us to pride, but the grace of the Lord will fashion humility. Such a humble walk is surely, it's a constant fight. It's every single day, every single moment of the day, the fight to look at the Lord. Ray Ortland shared this just two weeks ago, Pastor Ray Ortland sharing with the Acts 29 pastors gathered in Colorado, with the pastors and wives who were gathered there just a couple weeks ago, he wrote something along the lines of this, yesterday's manna could not be collected and saved for today. There will be manna for today and tomorrow. This is the false humility of those who can point to a date that they wrote in their Bible, that they said a prayer and were saved, but have completely neglected to look to their Redeemer during the course of life for grace to walk with him. Today, our salvation is all and always by grace, by the grace of the gospel, abundant and sufficient for all our days into eternity. The day of salvation is not a date that you wrote in your Bible. The day of salvation is an eternal day of rest secured for you on a particular day, on a particular cross for you. By grace you have been saved today, tomorrow, forever. A new life, a new walk for eternity that never ends. I would call you to this. Resist the devil. I know that this morning there are a number of different people in this room right now. There are those who are unbelievers, and I would call you Unbeliever, unbelief is pride. Lay down your arguments and receive revelation. His word has spoken. And you know that today you're just arguing. Lay down your arguments and believe. This morning, I would speak to the licentious sinner. You're caught up in it. It's not that you don't believe. It's just that you don't think that God can make you happy. And you've chosen, on my own, I can live. On my own, I can be happy. Lay down your demand to make yourself happy and receive the grace of eternal joy. Today, trust him. Trust him. And I would speak to those who walk in self-righteous pride. You're those who are like, no, I'm not that first guy. I'm not that second. I believe and I'm not walking in sin. That's right. I saw a, a, 
a billboard yesterday that I'll tell you, if I lived in this town, I'd preach against this billboard publicly, okay? For now, I'll just share it with you this way. It literally said, every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord, even the Democrats. That makes me cry. What? What's wrong with us? That we would claim to say that, no, I I believe. I'm a Christian. I follow after the way of God. Oh, I've laid aside all that sin, that licentious stuff. And I've figured out how to live. And I walked right up to God and told him all about it. Just like I'm telling you. I'm sorry. If you can say that with a straight face, you're lost. You're lost. I mean, it's a true sentence. But it's so incomplete. And I'm just challenged by how much of the way we're walking right now, somewhere in here, somewhere in here, and sometimes, ah, out here, is the same self-righteousness. There's a log and a speck issue in that billboard. And I'm not telling you, so take out the log out of your own eye. I'm telling you what James says. Draw near to God. He's, he's a perfect optim- ophthalmologist. He's got perfect vision. He's got just the right amount of light. He's going to remove that thing. He's going to sober you up. And he's going to stand you up right where you were made and redeemed to belong. Draw near to God. I, I, I can't, I, I've wrestled. This has been probably one of the hardest sermons that I've had to prepare in a long, long time. It's on pride. It's on what's wrong with me. You know, it's on what's wrong with you. You preach that one, all right? So I'm gonna let a guy who preached better than I ever will end our time together. Robert Murray McShane, some of you may be familiar with him. He says these two things, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. And if you wanna write something in the front of your Bible, write that. He's altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief of sinners. Live much in the smiles of God. What a great sort of paraphrase of the word grace. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, Feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Friends, you know what humility is? It's to be brought low into the shadow of the master's wing where there's refuge. He continues, let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Let the Holy Spirit fill every chamber of your heart 
and so there will be no room for folly or the world or Satan or the flesh. There is no greater way to end our time in the seven deadly sins. And as we found all of our follies during the course of this summer, than to simply say, maybe we shouldn't have talked about those quite so much. Maybe it's time to look at Jesus. And friends, that's what we'll do. We're going to turn to Mark in just a few weeks, and we're going we're to look at Jesus. And we're going to enjoy him, and we're going to fill up every space with the sight of Jesus. He'll sober us. He'll stand at us up. And he'll give us a grace-filled way to live. Heavenly Father, your grace is perfect, abundant and sure. It is a gracious providence. I thank you, God, that your grace comes to us and it Your mercy is new every morning. As great is your faithfulness. We don't have to keep your grace. Your grace is abundant and sure. Lord, we ask that you would simply keep us looking at your grace. Bring us into fellowship with you, and when we find ourselves in fellowship with you, we'll find ourselves in fellowship with one another, that we would lay down our pride, that we would find our rightful station in the beautiful kingdom of our God, the station that is not our right by our behavior, but is our right by the Son, Jesus Christ, who has secured it for those who come to him in faith. I pray again, Lord, that you would, your revelation would break through the arguments of unbelief, that your grace would break through the arguments that we must make ourselves happy in our own way. And your grace would break through our self-righteousness. And particularly, Lord, if I could just ask, a self-righteousness that is so culturally prevalent. It's hard to even know who the church even is sometimes. I pray that you would break through our self-righteousness by your grace. Gives us a glimpse of Jesus as we turn to you in song, as we turn to you in communion, as we turn to you in your word and by your spirit in the coming day of salvation. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.